Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 25th, 2014, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those of you that want the numbers versus the letters, 866-658-4465. If you call that number, you're not going to get me directly. You're going to get a voice message system, and you might hear yourself on next Friday or the following Friday's call. If after your call more than two weeks go by and you're not on the air, it probably means there was nothing wrong with your call. Just based on numbers, you didn't get through the screening process. And uh, you might want to recall that in. Here's the secret. I've been doing it for like the past couple uh, months now. I've been screening calls starting on the day of the show. So Thursday and Friday are the best days to call in to likely get your call on the air. When you do call in, call from a quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, look at it. If there's no bars or only one bar on it, go somewhere else so I don't hear it. Hi, Jack. Because I will delete your call because nobody can understand what you're saying. Do not call while wanting, running a chainsaw, a weed eater, or riding on the back of a motorcycle, or driving 857,000 miles an hour in a big truck with the windows down. I won't be able to hear you, and I won't use your call otherwise. Formula for the call to be most likely to get it on the air is this. Hi, Jack. My question or point is, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. Whatever it is, one or two sentences. The details are, if you think you need additional details with it. Then you give me the details. If you want to say, I love the show or whatever, do that at the end. If you sit there and go for a minute and you're telling me how much you love the show, I appreciate it. But honestly, when I'm screening calls, it's like, okay, where's the question? Where's the question? Delete next. It's just how I have to do things to get a show out like this every week. The Friday show takes up about three times as much time to screen, set up, and prepare as all the other shows do. So... That's how you can get on the air, just trying to help you out, not picking on anybody individually there. Remember also, we do have an expert counsel. I have gotten a few calls that I haven't been able to get to them. I've gotten some calls I've got to them. I haven't gotten back. This is a weird time of the year. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here right now that I can't really tell you about. So, And, of course, I was sick for a couple weeks, so there's maybe a backup there. Do have one expert counsel member call for you today. You can find the counsel on every Friday show they're listed. You may see some changes to the counsel and some changes to the format with the council very, very soon. I just haven't been able to put those into place. I want to make it better for you and get more use out of the council. And I think we might be adding some people and maybe even eliminating some people from the council. Anyway, with that, let's uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, survivalgearbags.com. Kelly John Doe runs Survival Gear Bags. If you uh, ever interacted with him on the TSP forum, his handle is Cart Pusher, and if you could see his member number, it's like 67 or something like that. He's been around since the very early days of TSP. He was in the fulfillment industry, did some group buys for members of our forum, thought, hey, maybe I can make a business out of this, put together survivalgearbags.com, and now runs that website and business with him. It's him, himself, and his family. I kind of jumbled that there, but Kelly's an awesome dude. He also runs tspgear.com, the official TSP gear shop. The fact that I took and uh, gave the gear shop to Kelly tells you something about my opinion of how he does things. Check him out today, Survival Gear Bags, for great gear and great bags to put that gear in. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the first ones. 
Vic Rontal over there was the first guy that came to me and said, Hey, Jack, we want to sponsor your show, sponsor what you're doing, and be part of it. Uh, this January will be the sixth anniversary, sixth anniversary of Safe Castle Royal being a TSP sponsor. You really need to think about that when you're making decisions of where to buy your preparedness items. Not just with Safe Castle, but with all of our sponsors. The majority of our sponsors with us right now have been with us for four years or more. There are very few podcasts that last four years, let alone sponsorships of podcasts that last four years. And I damn sure don't know many sponsorships in conventional radio that are this personal and individual and go four years. Safe Castle has everything you need for your prepping needs. They also build some awesome hardened shelters. Check them out today. They're, again, safecastle.com is the website. You can also find them at prepared.pro, prepared.pro, another easy way to remember who they are. Um, I'll tell you what, remember that Safe Castle Royal also has an awesome discount membership program, $49 a year, or $49 once, and it's a lifetime membership. They give it away to, for free to all of our MSB members. It's one of the most valuable benefits we have, and they support us that way too. Survival Gear Bags also gives the discount to you MSB members. Uh, and along with free shipping. Most of our sponsors do have a discount for MSB, and a lot of other great companies do as well. If you want to become a member of the Support Brigade, just go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members. You'll get content available nowhere else, over $150 worth of free eBooks on day one, and great discounts that will more than pay for your membership. Uh, with that, let's go to the year that was the episode. The year is 1394, and... Uh, We have for you today a choice between two things. The Great Schism, a second chance at unity, denied, and the Koreans have soul. I'm going to read The Great Schism, a second chance at unity. You can read The Koreans Have Soul and all the other great uh, pieces of history at the TSP Wiki. TSPWiki.com, of course, is the survival and sustainability wiki for our community where you can not only get a lot of information, you can become a contributor there as well. Great schism, a second chance of unity, denied. A few years ago, the two popes were elected and claimed authority over the church. Mad King Charles of France, who's lost his frickin' rocker, that's an aside for me, by the way, at this point, uh, supports Pope Clement VII in Avion, but he's been trying to convince Pope Clement to resign, probably just to clear up all the crap that's going on. The scholars at the University of Paris have suggested that both popes resign and a new pope be elected to unify the church. It is not to be. Pope Clement has collapsed in a fit of apoplexy, which means he lost consciousness and died of a heart attack or more likely a stroke. Pope Boniface IX in Rome is a reasonably good pope, but Rome is still a dangerous place. The cardinals in Avion elect Pope Benedict XIII and make him promise to resign if ever a majority vote, vote to have him do so. The cardinals are looking ahead to church unity. My take by Alex Shrugged, in a sense, waiting for one of the popes to die in order to you to find the church is letting God make the decision. One assumes that God has a plan, that he would not allow the wrong pope to take the reins of this church. I don't know if one believes that. One has not read the Bible. I mean, I'm not a religious man, and I don't believe what most people that would call themselves Christians or Catholics today believe. But I do know what the Bible says, and God let the wrong person in charge quite a few times. At least according to that dialogue. Anyway, unfortunately, this sort of logic can be misleading. For example, if I'm supporting Pope A against Pope B, and Pope A dies, does this mean I was wrong, or does it mean that God wants me to elect Pope C for God's plan? How can one decide? The church or any religious group needs a formal designated body to make these decisions. The church will form several special councils until they finally hit on one that works. 
The Council of Constance will begin the work of unification in 1414. My take on this is a little completely different. I, I think that the, the big thing that we have lost through the lens of history is what a big problem this was. Let's say that today the Catholic Church, whoever the Pope is there, I don't know who he is right now. I don't really pay attention to church business anymore as a uh, what I call myself is a, is a former, or actually a reformed Catholic. I've reformed myself by leaving. Um, I don't really pay attention to what the Catholic Church is doing. And I know the Pope is technically the, the head of the Vatican, and Vatican City is technically a nation, and a lot of people care. Well, a lot of people care about a lot of things that I don't care about. And I think a lot of people, whether it offends anybody or not, kind of feel that way about the Pope. Oh, that's Pope so-and-so? Oh, that's nice. I mean, if you're not Catholic, eh, you don't care. Um, at this time, you cared. Whether you were Catholic or pagan or whatever, you cared. Because the church was one of the greatest and most powerful bodies of government in the world, at least the European world and the you know Asia Minor world and all in the area that the church had influences all throughout there, had incredible power and like did things like imprisoned people and put them to death. Okay, so let's look at it this way. The, the the church of the time was an empire within empires, and an empire often that spanned empires. So French have this, English have that. Both of them want to kill each other in the Hundred Years' War, but the church has a presence on both sides and is accepted largely by both sides. Kind of like the United States today. Now, what if what if the United States actually had some states that were largely more disconnected than Alaska? Okay, because that's kind of all stable and all that. Let's say we had some states, um, some presidents, not just military base, but states in like, let's say Italy. Let's say Italy was uh, the 51st state of the United States of America. We actually had a, you know, there. And let's say that in Italy, um, they decided that there was, uh, there, there was uh, let's say that we, we made Italy our capital for whatever reason. We decided it was, it was better to have a capital over there. It was, it was you know, kind of in the, in the middle of the rest of the world. So we put D.C. in Italy. And then Italy, we got into a really bad problem, and we started having a lot of fear that our government was threatened in Italy. So we elected a new president in Washington. Okay, And let's say this president had more power than even our presidents do today. Let's say there wasn't really a Congress. There was like the cabinet and the president, and that was the entire legislative and executive branch of the of the United States. And both presidents refused to step down, and both presidents said to the world, I'm the president of the United States, and both presidents had a legitimate claim. And both presidents had their own individual cabinets issuing their own edicts and laws and legislation. I'm not saying we should run the country that way. I'm saying if we did, and that was what was going on right now, and how that would impact the rest of the world, that's how this impacted the world at the time. There was no higher authority than God in the church supposed to speak for God, and most people believed it. And the church was skewn in two. That was the time, 1394. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into... Uh, the main part of today's show, which of course is taking your calls, your calls to 866-65-THINK. And with that, let's take that first call. Hey Jack, this is Bob, still in Flagstaff, but not much longer. My question this morning has to do with Zone 1. That's the zone immediately around our home. I would like you to discuss Zone 1 from the perspective of the four points of the compass. 
what would one do with the north side of the house, the east side of the house, and so on? Um, just a little follow-up comment after the basic question is, I called you back in May. We went down to Texas to look around. You probably recall my call. Anyway, we found a place, uh, seven acres. Uh, we're in the hill country. Uh, we followed your recommendations. No limestone, no cedars, good drainage. And so we're preparing to move there, and we're starting to do our planning. So your comments on Zone 1 immediately around the house would be most helpful. Thank you so much for all you do. Bye. Well, just for those that maybe are newer to the show and haven't had any of the TSP version uh, information on permaculture, let's cover zones in a really, really quick 30-second way. Zones exist on a property around your home, and with permaculture, we manage those zones to the ends of providing the things we need and we want from our homestead, usually looking to food, livestock, and energy resources, like where we would stack firewood and things like that. Technically, zone, zone zero is inside the house, and then as soon as you step outside, you're in zone one. And then zone, and we, they usually show this with circles, but it's really not a circle. It, it, it's designed to be, okay, this is what makes the most sense. Zone one is generally going to be the area around your home that you will step foot on naturally at least once a day. Or that if you put something there that needs to be seen to once a day, it's very, very convenient to do so. Zone two, you go out a little less maintenance, a little bit larger plantings, a little bit more uh, what you would call rough mulches probably less irrigation, et cetera. Zone three, you're moving out to more of a main cropping area. Zone four, you're into like a forestry management system. Zone five is wilderness. And he says zone one, and the, as it pertains to the compass around the home. Um, first, let me tell you why you're right to think of this way and say, what do I do with zone one? Most people will be better off if they take their first year and use it to observe their property, make decisions in the back of their mind, prepare an analysis of the property, and put doing anything outside of Zone 1 on the, on the shelf called later. Because the Zone 1 of a property, especially a property of an acre or more, you know, when you get into some size, versus a, a suburban property where pretty much almost the whole thing is treated like a Zone 1. I mean, if you have a, a 100 foot deep by 90 foot wide lot, you're going to probably easily be able to step on every inch of that every day. And therefore, you'll treat most of it as a Zone 1 thing, and you probably won't have all five zones. But if you're in an area where you're going to have a you know, three-zone, four- or five-zone design, it probably makes an awful lot of sense to put the first year's intensive development on Zone 1 because it can provide so much of your needs, and it's this area that you're going to do the most heavy maintenance and most heavy development of. So it's a great place to start, and it helps you from feeling overwhelmed. And we'll hear a call later that... You'll hear exactly that in the person's voice. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. And zone one may not be the answer there for this person, but the thinking of let's design this, let's get this implemented, and once that's done, now let's go do this, very much so. And for most people, again, that zone one design is the place to start. Step outside and design the first foot you, you see in front of you. So from a standpoint of the compass, I hate saying this. It always sounds like a cop-out, but it is 99% the, the right answer when it comes to permaculture most of the time is it depends. And even what you're asking is it depends. because So I'm sitting with my, my iPhone in front of me right now. So it's basically a rectangle. 
All right, so let's assume that, that that rectangle is sitting, you know, horizontal to me, long ways to me, and my stomach represents the sun, and that means that's the south side, and then the other long side is this is is the uh, north side, and then the two short ends of my iPhone are the east and west end, and we can just imagine what the sun looks like going past that. Okay, so is is the side facing my stomach which is the sun is that 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 south side that's going to get the most sun is at the front or the back of the house <laughs> you see what i mean right there i mean that that has a huge difference because the the most the often the front yard is shallower than the backyard so am i casting a shadow to the to the the the, the north side of the home that that takes up 1% of the total yard or one that takes up 50% of the total yard Uh, now, just to have some fun, I'm going to turn the iPhone so it's vertical. So imagine that. So the short end is now pointing at my stomach that's the sun. And the short end on the other side is now facing north where it's going to be shaded out almost completely uh, at, at times of day. And in parts of the year, there'll be nothing but a long-tailed shadow back there. And now the sun moves across from east to west on the long sides of the house. So now the house is oriented that way. Okay, well, is the house now in a position where... The, the south side of the home that's getting hit with the sun, the short edge, just has to be a long house and it's facing the street and that's the front yard? Or is it now that the long part of the house is facing east and the sun's coming across that side of that edge, south edge of the house, and that's a side yard? See, all of this changes everything. But there are some constants to a degree here, you know, and that house could be skewed so that The, 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 the one corner is pointing due south, the other corner is pointing due north, and you have basically uh, the sun coming across and a long edge that's facing southwest and a long edge that's facing northeast. It always changes. But east sides of buildings, especially in hot climates like Texas, are excellent for vegetable gardens because they get great morning sun, pretty good midday sun, and then they tend to get shaded out quite a bit for the rest of the day. This is like phenomenal as long as it really does get sun in the morning. Because if there's not enough sun, you've got a problem. In some northern climates, it may be too shaded there. The, 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 the plants may need more sun throughout the day, so they may want to be more toward the south side uh, of the home or far enough away on the north side that the house doesn't really affect them. Because if you have the right angles and things like that, you, know, you can do that. Your, your south side of your home is going to be the, the side that gets pounded with the most sun to a degree and will get hit harder with the sun actually in fall and spring and winter than it will in summer. Because in summer, the sun's going to be high up overhead. So the things on, on the south side of a home, you want to look to the things that may need a little extra help ripening fruits late in season because if they're up against the wall, that solar bank, that sol solar thermal bank of the wall, and there's an apricot tree up against there that would have trouble ripening, your late fall, that sun's coming lower in the sky, it's baking that wall all day, all of a sudden that tree can ripen its fruit. It's also the place to put the things that you're thinking, you know what, in my climate, it gets cold enough in winter that this is marginal. I'm not sure if this is going to survive or not. Okay, I'm not sure if it's going to make it, so I'm going to put it on this, this, you know, close to the house on the southern side, so the thermal energy bank of the house, 
The thermal mass of the house is going to help keep this thing a few degrees warmer and get it through those, those few cold days that this one plant may not make it. A lot of people think, well, you know, the western wall is a great place to do that because that western wall bakes with that late-day sun. Well, the western wall bakes in the summer in the western sun. And it bakes in early spring and early summer uh, or early fall in the western sun. And since it's a very long day period, there's a lot of thermal energy pushed on that west side of the house. And it's during the reason it's hotter than the eastern wall, all things being equal, let's say your eastern wall and your western wall get the same amount of sun. It's a perfect setup. Well, your eastern wall gets the sun when? During the cooler part of the day in the morning. Your western wall gets the sun when? In the later part of the day when the ambient air temperature is at its highest. So the western wall gets hotter holds heat through the night more, but then it sits in shade most of the day until the afternoon hours. That means, yes, things that like a lot of heat and dry conditions will do well there, but if you put something there and it's something that may not survive your coldest time of year, that means that, yeah, it'll get that sun in the afternoon, But once that sun goes down, the overnight cold comes in, it's a long time before the sun warms it again. And something that's marginal would be better on your southern wall or your eastern wall. Because the eastern wall gets the morning sun and gets warmed up, and the thermal mass of the home in the winter continues longer for it than the western. The western wall is going to be actually cold, very cold at the coldest time of the year. It will take a long time for that sun to get over there. And yeah, it warms it up some, but it's not there very long. Your northern wall is your coldest shaded area. So you want, it's actually a great place for tropical plants that are in pots and casters that can be brought in. Most of those plants do very, very well in shaded environments in the heat. It's a good place to grow mushrooms. It's a good place to keep anything that needs to be cool. Um, most southern or northern walls actually do get sun in the middle of the, the summer because the sun gets so high the shadow of the building gets very narrow by midday and those areas can actually become quite hot in hot climates so that's that's another consideration there so those are your your main considerations then you have to bring in your other considerations so this is about sector analysis now so just because it's facing south doesn't mean anything if it, if you have huge trees on neighboring property that you can't remove or prune out, and that southern side of the house is completely shaded in. But is it always? It may be a great place for winter and fall growing and early spring growing if the trees are deciduous. If they're evergreens, then it's constantly shaded. So where's your main wind come from in winter and summer? That's another thing to look at, because the building acts as a wind block. Or if, the, if it's leading into the wind and the wind's hammering up against it, and you got the, the, the your plantings up against the wall, you can actually have your plants beating up against the wall. These are the things that you have to consider uh, when you're designing your zone one around a building. That's kind of the best I can do in a, in a format of a show like this. Let's take another one. This question is in regards to rainfall data collection available on the Internet, and it is intended for expert council members and Jack. Hi, Jack. My name is Martin, and I live in Morgan Hill, California. I am currently taking Jeff Lawton's permaculture design course. I have been going through the Department of Commerce, web, Commerce website for rainfall collection data. This is a very time-consuming task, 
of downloading PDFs and converting the data into Excel documents. All other websites that I have visited don't give me the data that I need. Is this data already organized somewhere that I don't know of, or is this something that I have to do by myself? Because this sucks still attached. Rocky Mountain Oysters, please help. Thank you, Jack, and expert council members. Uh, okay, I couldn't quite make the name. I said Morgandale or something like that. I couldn't really make out the name of the town that you're talking about. But I have a feeling what you're doing here is getting too deep in the weeds for the purpose of getting deep in the weeds versus getting the numbers that you really need for the purpose of doing an analysis and planning your system. Um, the Weather Channel generally will give you averages, which is what you really need. And you can generally look up just about any place by zip code and pull up the averages in a monthly graph. Uh, I picked uh, Sacramento because it's in California. And so I can tell you in Sacramento, here's your average rainfall. 3.97 in January, 3.82 in February, 3.02 in March, 1.3 in April. It was 0.76 in May, 0.19 in June, 0 in July. 0.03, I might as well call that 0 in August. 0.35. Uh, in September, 1.05 in October, 2.43 in November, 3.48 in December. And that's given it monthly. Of course, the average annual is easy to calculate from there, and they give you that number, too, if you look hard enough. Um, you could change it to metric if you want to. You get your average temperatures from there. This is the only data that I ever use for my basic calculations. I I really need to know when the dry period is, when the wet period is, and what's the average rainfall from a catchment that I can I can have to work with, uh, especially if I'm looking at rain collection, putting in tanks or something like that, surface area of the roof. I mean, if a roof is going to collect uh, 3,000 gallons of water a year, there's zero reason for me to probably put a 3,000-gallon tank on that, uh, on that roof. I, now, I want you to think about that. Let's say that the average rainfall per year is 3,000 gallons. There's zero reason for me to put a 3,000-gallon tank in. Why? Because I don't get all 3,000 gallons in one event. The tank will never fill. And I am going to probably be using it during a most heavily using that water during two or three months of the biggest dry season. And that gives me maybe uh, half of the year to save water up for it. I'll be using it more and more as it gets drier and drier. I'm probably looking at a 1,500-gallon tank for that roof. That doesn't mean I don't want a 3,000-gallon tank there. If I can find enough roof catchment to put water in a 3,000-gallon tank, yeah. If I have a roof that is going to catch me about 3,000 gallons per side, I might put two 1,500-gallon tanks in. Uh, it may be easier and more economical and more feasible to do that than to try to route all the rain to one tank all the way around the house. Usually you're going to get into flow and overflow capacity issues there. But when it comes to a surface area that I'm putting down into uh, – into, uh, the other thing you want to do, and you can usually look up these climatic records pretty easily too, is find out – what your record uh, recorded rainfall for a single event and for a single year are, uh, and, and your lowest year. And then you have to design your redundancy around your and your resiliency around your lowest year. And you have to design anything that is going to actually do a lot with a lot of water around your 100-year flood event, your, your maximum rainfall event. Uh, and what I mean by that is when you're designing a swale, 
Um, if you know you're catching water off your yard and your neighbor's yard and you're talking about a couple acres, it's probably not that big a deal. Um, it depends, obviously. A really, really small swale that can channel a lot of water into one location that it all has to come out of, it can be a big deal. But in general, you're not dealing with something that's going to be a massive issue. As you start taking swales up in scale and size and catchment, Here's what happens when you get a hundred year rain event, all of a sudden that sill that you designed, that, that it was designed to work perfectly and it has worked perfectly over and over and over again, uh, all of a sudden has 500 gallons of water per second pouring through it. And if you didn't design redundancies for that large scale event, when that happens, you can have catastrophic failure. Um, most large swales, you're actually better off dealing with it by doing this. You build a sill. And then somewhere else, a with a little higher level set, you build an emergency sill. And then even with that, you build a bypass pipe, a drain pipe somewhere else that vents out another area. So you have two redundancies. Um, and you have to think about that 100-year rain event when you design that. And you can do it pretty low-tech to get a visual. If, uh, let's say, you determine that based on your catchment, Uh, area, all the places water falls, and at your highest rain event that the maximum potential water flow through that area is, let's say, 100 gallons a second. Well, you can fill up, you don't even have to fill them up, really, but you can fill up a 100 uh, milk jugs, and you could set them there, and you can look at that, and you can visually see to yourself, that's what 100 gallons a second looks like. 100 gallons a second is a lot of water, and it's going to... It's going to fill the same volume that it does in those jugs. So if those jugs are about 10 inches tall and a hundred of them in a line goes straight across that ceiling and goes connects end to end with a little bit of compaction, that's what that's going to look like. And that sill is probably not going to survive that. So you're going to have to put redundancies in there so that 50 of it can go here and 50 of it can go there. And then you can redo that mental exercise. Um, and those are the considerations you're doing. Basically, if you're designing in a desert, you're designing for a flood. That's a hard thing to grasp as well. Because that major rain event is going to have so much catchment and so much runoff, it's going to act like a flood, even if it's not, once you start putting catchment into it. So I'm not really sure what data you're going through and how, how nebulous you're getting with this data. But in the end, even if you go through 100 years of data and get the rainfall recorded for every single month, you're going to work with averages. So just look the average up. Um, if I'm oversimplifying this, call in a follow-up question on this and email me with uh, follow-up for Jack and the subject line caller and point out that you've called that in and I'll address it. But I think you need to be working with averages, not all of this uh, minute, minuscule data. Hello, Mr. Spirico. My name is Mike. I'm from the Southwest. My name's not important. I'm not particularly important, but I would like to relay a couple of things to you. I had a relative who was airborne ranger, Green Bray. I have friends that were all three of those plus Delta, and I can tell you, The more, most important thing they think about over there is each other and watching their own behinds. Another thing they are concerned with destroying truly evil fundamentalists and sometimes helping the local civilians and help them with their horrible lifestyle culture. And uh, the most, most of them are disgusted with uh, Obama, the Republicans, the Repo Democrats, and Republicans, all of them. Uh, I would, I challenge you to speak addressing their cultural life, lifestyles where pedophilia and BCLA are uh, not uncommon. They are actually very common. 
as you probably know, they had uh, some of the officers in Afghanistan have young boys that attend to them. I challenge you to repeat this message and uh, have per- perhaps have a veteran tell what it's really like in their culture and give give the people of this country an idea of what we're fighting for over there. We are we are killing fundamentalists. That's important, but their culture is not like ours. I wish you the very best, and I keep up your efforts. Thank you, and have a nice day. I'm going to say something at first that might seem harsh, and in this case, I'm going to acknowledge that the caller may be accurate, but there is something that always sets off my bullshit detector when somebody starts talking about their credentials uh, from a military perspective. There's actually several terms terms that are used. When, when somebody tells me they were with Special Forces and they say they were with 7th Group, it's like, it's possible, but well, everybody always says they were with Seventh Group, you know. Uh, everybody's always with Delta. Everybody, and and this is the one that, that tips me off here more than that. He was Airborne Ranger Green Beret. There are some people, there are some who have completed Ranger School and then gone to Special Forces School. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's not that common. It really isn't. It actually takes a significant investment in a soldier to turn him into a ranger. And it takes an even larger investment, I'm talking pure financial here, to turn someone into a Green Beret. It's very expensive to train a soldier in general, but to train a ranger a Green Beret gets much more expensive. When I've, when I've now trained you to be a ranger, I've made a very significant investment in you. And I, I find a lot of people that talk about someone they know, it, they have to lump all this stuff on top of it as though it gives a greater air of credibility. I give just as much credibility to the basic infantryman that slopped his ass off over there in the suck in Afghanistan for two years as I do a guy that's Airborne Ranger or a guy that's Special Forces. And I'm telling you, Airborne Ranger Green Beret is a huge tip-off that somebody's bullshitting. Not Maybe not the caller, but maybe the guy that's telling him this. I don't know. But you guys know what I'm talking about. Everybody was in SEAL Team 6 or 7th Group or Delta this. And, and there's just not that many guys that have been in those roles. And, and I think one of the first things we need to do whenever we hear somebody making claims and saying, it's well, I get to say this because I'm so-and-so, is it, say, you know what, it doesn't really that matter that much. And most people that are don't tell you. Most people that really were with 7th Group don't tell you. You have to literally pull it out of them. Uh, most people who are rangers will tell you they were a ranger, and there's there's a lot of rangers. Rangers are an elite group, but they are nowhere no, numbers-wise as elite as SF, and certainly nowhere numbers-wise as elite as the specialized groups within special forces. Okay, so just I had to say that. Uh, next, it, with the callers coming from the standpoint of this, hey, what we're doing over here is important. We're killing these fundamentalists. These people that want to run their country based on this religious stuff, and they, 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 they have sex with donkeys? For God's sakes, they have sex with donkeys. You know what? That's true. I, I've heard enough of it to know that. And I know the twisted logic that these people have that, that, that leads to that. It, it's pretty messed up. Um, there's no doubt that Islamic fundamentalism is a twisted thing. It really is. Okay, but do you think by going over there and, and, and having a war with those people, we're going to change it? Do you, do you think that? Do, do you really think that? 
Or do you think that actually us attacking them gives them greater power? Because their message to control the population is these heathens want to come here and make you live their way. So then you go there to help them live your way and they say, see? We really have no business in these parts of the world, and a lot of the instability in these world in this part of the world is something we caused. If I have a veteran that's been there that says, I've seen this and this and this and this, and he's not going, I'm Airborne Ranger Green Beret, and I was in the seventh group, and oh, I was in SEAL Team Six before I joined the Army. That's when I was in the Navy, but I, I thought that was too easy. So and I hear people like that, and those people just go away. But a legitimate guy that's been there in the suck, again, I don't care if you're SF or you're just a freaking eleven Bravo. I don't care. I'll listen to you, and if you say it, I'll believe it if you're credible. And I believe a lot of the stuff you hear is true. It really is happening. My question is, are you changing it? Is anything that we're doing actually making it less prevalent over there? And I'll tell you what the answer is, no. No, it's not. And the consequences are that we go in there, we impose our will, then we leave, then we create a vacuum, and then it gets worse than it was before we started. Uh, don't believe me? Take a look at Iraq right now. And ISIS, isn't it ironic that ISIS, the name we've given these people, they didn't give themselves a name ISIS. They, they don't use our alphabet. Hello? They don't use our freaking alphabet. How could they be ISIS? Anyway, um, <laughs> God, America, you're so stupid. You really are, right? ISIS, that sounds scary. That's what we'll call them. So these ISIS guys, you know who these guys are? These are the guys that are fighting the Syrian regime. That's where all this shit started. These guys are the rebels in Syria, right? Well, where did they get their money and guns? Where did that all come from? Huh? Well, it would be the United States, France, Britain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. All right? That's where this, that's the genesis of this group. These are the Syrian rebels that we were saying were freedom fighters a year and a half ago. But now they're not doing what we want, so now they're, now they're worse than Al-Qaeda. That's what was out today. And they've invaded northern Iran. Why did they, they, or Iraq? Why did they invade northern Iraq? Well, do you know the Iraqi government doesn't really do shit with northern Iraq? Even, even Saddam Hussein barely did. Other than a couple times to go up there and, and murder some Kurds. It, it's the Wild West. It always has been. So, don't stand up and buy into this crap because guys go over there and say, man, some of these people over there are horrible. We got enough horrible people right here in this country right here. To worry about without worrying about somebody else's country. Oh, these guys are awful. Let's go make them our enemies. That's a good idea. That's brilliant. That's what we should do. We should piss them off at us even more than they already are. Oh, they hate us for our freedom. They don't give a shit about us in general. The average person over there doesn't care about us. And all we're going to do is make this worse. And every day we're there makes this worse. It's up to those people to fix their country. You understand that? And until they are stuck with that reality, they won't fix their country. You have to understand basic human dynamics before you buy into this story. If I want to impose totalitarianism on a people, the very first thing I need is an enemy. I cannot impose totalitarianism on a people without an enemy. So if I don't have one, I'll fabricate one, but if one comes along, I'll use them. How do you impose totalitarianism on people in the United States in the 1950s um, at a time when America was still clinging so much to the Constitution and a guy like Roosevelt hadn't gotten very far with it? 
you create the Cold War and you point out that the Soviets are just waiting to nuke us any second. Now, looking through the lens of history, you should realize that it wasn't a good thing that the Soviet Union and the United States of America had a bunch of nukes pointed at each other, but the Soviets weren't about to just start nuking the shit out of us because they knew we nuked them back. That all of the hype and fear was due to, we have to have a common enemy. That way, we can come up with all these new laws and regulations that are necessary to protect us. And when the Cold War ends, we need a new enemy. I know. You know those guys that we helped out in Afghanistan for so long, the freedom fighters that were fighting the Russians? Well, the Russians aren't the enemy anymore. Let's change the name of their group from Mujahideen to Al-Qaeda. They're the new enemies. And let's go freaking jack around in their country and piss them off even more. Like poking a bunch of freaking hornets. You've been lied to. You've been misled. The United States cannot police the rest of the world. Are there a lot of things in a lot of places that are wrong? Yes. Are there a lot of things in a lot of places I wish that we could just put our hands on and go, be healed and they would be healed like like the real version of a televangelist? Yes. Can we? know? You don't go try to do something that you cannot do. And we cannot change the Middle East. And we cannot change basically southwestern Asia. We can't. No more than we could change Vietnam. Oh, there's another example. See, the North Vietnamese are evil. They're just horrible. And if we let them do what they're going to do, the whole damn eastern part of the world will turn into communism overnight. And they'll be eating babies for lunch, and it'll be awful. And have you, have you seen what Vietnam looks like today? And people say, that's disrespectful to the 58,000 Americans that died there, Jack, that are on that big wall. Don't you respect them? I respect them. I don't respect the people that sent them there to die. I don't respect the lies under which they died under. I respect the intention and the bravery of the men that fought and died. But it was an ill-gotten war. There's no, there's no glory in the Vietnam War for our side. None. And for years, I was the patriotic American that thought, we could have won that war if we had just had the gloves taken off us and fought. It was never supposed to be won, folks. It was a general exercise to put money into the pockets of the people that build weapons and develop and test new weapons so they could kill other people later. And your kids that went there and died were sent into a meat grinder to enrich the pockets of the people that control you today and make you hate your neighbor. There is no good in us blowing the shit out of people in the world. That guy had sex with a donkey. Hey, there's probably a guy across your street that raped a little kid yesterday. Maybe maybe if we weren't jacking around 5,000 miles away in the world, we could find that son of a bitch and put him in prison where he belongs and make some damn room for him by getting rid of a guy that's in there because he smoked some freaking dope. This typical thing that you hear from this caller I'm not putting him down because it's so easy to believe this reminds me of a friend of my son's I was having a conversation with his father about Afghanistan being a terrible mistake and he basically conceded that it was but he said because his daughter had been married to a man who died over there oh he didn't die at the hands of the enemy by the way he was now joy riding around with some of his buddies and one of those shitty bridges collapsed under their Humvee all right, 
We lost somebody there, so now we have to stay and finish it. Oh, because you lost somebody, you want somebody else to lose a lot of somebodies so that we can finish something that was a mistake in the first place. This is the insanity that America has been led to. I have a very simple policy with how I would handle warfare. You screw with us, you attack us, I will blow the shit out of you tenfold, and then I will go away and say, don't do it again. You attack me, I will attack your ass back. Otherwise, do whatever the hell you want, and if you're doing shitty things, I'm not going to do business with you. That's how we should run our freaking country. That's how we should run it. It's that simple. But the war machine doesn't work well like that. It works much better if we take a bunch of young kids in the prime of their life and send them to a meat grinder to have their heads destroyed, their limbs blown off, and some of them come back without even having their genitalia and tell them they're an American hero for being wounded in combat. And say we, we, we salute you for your service and then send them into a shitty VA hospital where they wait months to get needed treatment. Do nothing for them after they get out except some piddly shit of a supposed medical retirement and ignore them. And half of the damn males living on the streets today are veterans. Halla freaking Luya, God bless the USA. It's all bullshit. Stop believing what the TV tells you. And understand the men that come back are trying to justify the misery they went through. It will take them years to be able to speak the way that I do. Just like it took me years after my service to decouple from that and understand the reality. And folks, whenever you hear somebody say they were an Airborne Ranger and a Green Beret, at least have a little side of skepticism to go along with whatever they say next. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack229 Mick here calling from Chester County, Pennsylvania. I have a question for you that I'm amazed I haven't called to ask previously um, and hopefully is a simple one. Uh, how to deal with an inundation of gnats. Uh, the details are we've got um, a one-acre yard, one and a quarter roughly, and each year we get just an inundation of, of gnats. Uh, we have a pool on the side yard. We get them around there. We don't let the grass grow terribly high. We let it get, you know, above like a, a you know, go, uh, golf course. But aside from that, it's it's relatively short. But every time I go out to mow the lawn or do any work in the uh, the bushes or the any of my growings out there, just gnats come up all over the place. Uh, obviously, I don't want to spray and affect the dog, the chicken, ducks, uh, etc. And I don't know what else to do. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. Thanks for all you do. See you. This is kind of a tough one, and I, I I do have an idea for you, but it would not be completely benign to all of the other insects on your property. But it could be fairly easily confined to the area where they seem to be the most prevalent. One of the most effective uh, insecticides that's, that's relatively benign and harmless to most other creatures, uh, for flying insects is, is believe it or not, lemongrass oil. Um, and, you know, we use lemongrass to cook in a lot of Thai and Asian foods. It's a, it's a food we can eat. It's not, it's not really a toxin. But lemongrass oil 
on the pores of an insect, especially a small, relatively fragile flying insect like a housefly down to a gnat, is extremely effective at making them dead. Now, if it gets on bees, it can kill them. If it gets on any insect, it can either injure, damage, or kill them. So it's not something that you want to use widespread. The mix ratio to water it would be about 3% lemongrass oil. That's about all that you would need. So it's it's conceivable, and I don't know what equipment you would use to set this up, but a good home uh, home you know a home store type thing with somebody with a brain, if you can find one in there, should be able to help you do this with some sort of a solenoid or something like that. A good misting system would mix in your your lemongrass oil at a ratio of about three to three and a half percent to water, and setting up some sort of a, a, a misting system in that area. Um, and have that go off several times a day should do a damn good job at killing those gnats and at least controlling their population to a large degree. And if there was some way that they could be stirred up right before it's misted so they're in the air and hit by the mist airborne, that should really knock the shit out of them. So I don't know how you could do that. That would be my best way to do this because I don't know of much that eats gnats Really? And uh, it, it's just a difficult thing to try to kill something surgically. Um, this obviously would affect other insects in your area, but it's, it's probably not going to have a huge impact because it's going to settle out and then it's going to be watered in and it becomes pretty benign. It certainly isn't going to hurt your pets. It just isn't. Um, we use in the duck house every once in a while when it gets really heavy with flies, we put up fly paper in the summer, but when they get really bad in there, we use a natural insecticide that's made from exactly that inert material and lemongrass oil. I think it's hot shot makes it. And, uh, basically if the, if the ducks eat a fly that's been sprayed with that, they just got a lemon flavor to fly. It, it's, it's going to be, you know, I mean, I guess if you, if you put a gallon of it into a duck, you could probably hurt them, but a small misting of it and it has to kill an insect, that insect is going to do no harm to your livestock or your pets or to you. That's, that's the best option I can come up with off the top of my head. If anybody else knows a way to control gnats that is uh, less invasive, uh, I'd love to hear it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan calling. I just finished your episode where you talked with the law enforcement officer from South Carolina. And i got to say, I love the show. You made some great points. Um, I wanted to call and share a story from my neck of the woods. Uh, a gentleman I know is a Kent County Sheriff's deputy up here. And he was called to a Best Buy on a very, very busy road in our metro area that there was a man in the store with a rifle. He walked in and saw the guy browsing through his music CDs with an AK-47 on his back. There was no magazine in it. But the manager's pointing to him, and he walks over and just casually stands next to the guy looking through the CDs with him. And the guy, knowing what was coming next, said, let me guess why you're here. And the officer asked him, he said, why do you have this rifle in the store? It's kind of odd. And not getting jerky about it, the guy basically told him, he said, my pickup truck doesn't lock. I don't want to leave it in the car where somebody can just walk by and take it. And as the can't come to he said, okay, thank you. Walked away. The manager, you know, lost his mind. And said, why aren't you arresting the guy? And the deputy explained to him that it's not illegal. I mean, if you, as a store owner, you can ask him to leave. It makes you uncomfortable. Or as a manager. And uh, that was it. He informed the guy and, you know, he had a good interaction with it. Um, so it's good to see that there's still some good cops out there. Kind of a comical story, but 
so love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Yeah, see, I think this is an example of justified open carry that's not being done just for the purpose of making somebody pissed off. Um, it may look a little out of place, and I, I understand that. And I, I think if the store owner had said to the guy, look, I'm not comfortable you, with you in here with that weapon, the, the guy should have said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I guess you don't want my business and left. Um, and, and, and not had a problem with it because it's private property. He's not got the right to do whatever the hell he wants on somebody else's property. And he probably was a reasonable guy. He probably would have. This is the problem that the average moron has, though. If I actually mean you harm with an AK-47 and I have it on my person, it doesn't matter if there's a law that says I'm not allowed to be there. It doesn't matter if you tell me to leave. I'm probably not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to probably point it at you and make you do what I want to do and or shoot you in the freaking head. So the fact that there's a guy standing there with the weapon slung across his back, unloaded, no magazine in it, it tells you straight away, hey... I'm probably not a threat to you, but the average moron has a hard time understanding that. Just so other callers know, this is probably precipitated by some discussions we've had about open carry uh, activism, where guys do things like strap an AK around and start walking around a Target parking lot, specifically to bait law enforcement, so they can just sit there and go, Am I being detained? 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 Okay, and there's a, there's a damn sure a place for asking that question of a law enforcement officer. And when they refuse to answer it, saying, if I'm not being detained, I'm leaving, so am I being detained or not? And when they say yes, then you know what, you're being detained. But this open carry activism is resulting in new laws, specifically by local cities, prohibiting open carry in certain situations that never existed before, because these people are just stirring things up and pissing people off. This guy seemed to at least have a legitimate reason for it. I'm not doing this to make a point. I'm doing this because it's legal and I have a need for it right now. And, and most law enforcement doesn't really have a problem with that. The ones that do don't need their jobs. Like the piece of crap cop that I put up on Facebook today that shot a dog, and when they were talking about it in the car, it was too stupid to know his dash cam was recording him and said, I'm not talking, I'm not doing anything except shooting it, and then walked up and shot the damn dog. It took him eight shots to kill a dog at point blank range in a backyard, by the way. What a piece of crap that guy was. What a douchebag. You know, some of these cops that do shit like this, wouldn't you just love someday to say, you know what, take your badge off, take your gun off, let's go to the gym, let's hit the MMA ring, buddy. You know, because all these tough guys that do shit like this are generally sorry-ass pieces of crap when they have to stand up to somebody on equal terms. That's why they take these totalitarian jobs. And that's why they go out and act like a totalitarian. And that's why they exhibit criminal behavior and try to stand behind the protection of the state. Right, So the, the cops that actually have a problem with somebody working within the bounds of the law and doing for so for a valid reason are sorry pieces of shit that shouldn't have a badge. And if people ask me why I give law enforcement people a discount, because if you can hear that and you're law enforcement, I need you. I want you. And I want you standing out there and doing the job that you guys are supposed to do. And when I see, when you see your brother officers do this, I want you to grab them by the freaking neck. I want you to pull them aside and I want you to say, what the F is wrong with you, you stupid ass? That's what I want you to do if you're a good cop when you see one of your brother officers being a piece of shit. And if you won't do it, quit right now. Turn your badge in, turn your gun in, and go get a job at the mall because you don't need to be a cop either. And if you're still listening, God bless you and thank you for what you do. But do your damn job.
I didn't know I was going to get off on this rant. I, I understand what this caller is saying. I, I still say, you have to think about what you're doing with open carry. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do a lot of things, but I do them based on the situation. Just because I have a right to do something doesn't mean I should do it all the time. And every, well, this is something I think that America needs to get through their thick ass skull. Every right comes with an equal and corresponding responsibility. I have a right to own a gun, and you have a responsibility to use that weapon safely. You have a responsibility to secure that weapon. In fact, I would say that every right comes with responsibilities that exceed the right. The right to own a gun is pretty clear. The right to carry a gun is pretty clear in most situations. The right to have a gun, the right to have ammunition for a gun, the right to have the gun you want, that's, that's all pretty clear. But the responsibilities are things like if you take your gun fully loaded, laid against a tree in your front yard, yeah, it's on your property, but if a kid can access that gun, you're an irresponsible piece of shit for doing that. You shouldn't have a gun anymore because you're too stupid to have a gun. See how that works. Rights come with responsibilities. And we've lost that in this country. I have a right to you hear the kids you hear it all the time from. The young people in this country don't know jack shit about their right to keep and bear arms, but they sure as hell know about their right to free speech, but they don't know what the hell free speech is. And they don't know what the responsibilities that go along with that free speech are. I remember when uh, the president of Iran was going to come and give a speech at Columbia University, and they were asking college students about it, and they were, all the college students were saying, well, you know, it's, whether you like what he has to say or not, he has a right to free speech. Free speech doesn't apply to speaking at Columbia University, because I can't just go there and speak. It's by invitation of the university. It's not about free speech. Actually, it is about free speech. It's about Columbia University's right to free speech. Not the president of Iran's right to free speech. Columbia University has every right to have this jag-off speak there. Well, I'll tell you what. They also have the, the responsibility to think about their university and how it might negatively affect them. You have a right to free speech. That doesn't mean you have a right to get a bullhorn and stand out in front of your neighbor's house and start screaming commie at his door because you don't like him. That's not the free. That's not free speech. This is the, the problem in America today, that we don't understand the responsibilities that go along with rights, and that's a great way to give government an excuse to trample on and take your rights away from you with new laws that we need to protect people. This nation is not just ignorant. This nation is largely irresponsible today. Rights have responsibilities. Rights have responsibilities. That's something a lot of people have a hard time hearing. Hopefully you don't. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jacob here in Michigan. Just curious to hear your kind of compare and contrast on the old Alice load-bearing systems versus the newer Molly. Well, not really load. Really not load-bearing is the best way to describe it, but tactical general equipment carrying methods. Just curious what you think the pros and cons of each system are. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to couch with everything that I'll say with the following. I was in the Army in uh, the early 90s when Alice gear was still used widely. And, uh, in fact, there was no Molly back then. So... I'm going to be the person that's going to tell you whether I like one better or not. Alice is good enough. Um, the old rucksacks and things like that. I mean, this is the gear that, that we had. Uh, Alice uh, rucksacks and LBE, load-bearing equipment. You're, you're, you're dead on when you say that. Um, 
I liked the equipment. It worked well. It functioned well. I do believe the Molly, the modular systems of today, um, are more functional from a standpoint of being able to add gear and to put it wherever you want it. And I think the most important thing is being able to add and attach gear in a modular fashion to a pack where it's very secure and very stable and there's no slop in it. Um, or very, or less slop than there would be with comparable attachment of, of things to an Alice pack. The main reason that a person would choose Alice gear today over Molly, especially if you want military grade equipment, when the military quits using something and goes to something else, then it all becomes surplus and it gets dumped on the market. And it becomes cheap. And there's a lot of really good equipment, once issued, never issued Alice equipment out there today that's dirt cheap. And, and when I say dirt cheap, it's not just cheap compared to a civilian buying it uh, when it was in, in service. It's cheap compared to a soldier buying it. I was what people consider a smart soldier, if they understand the term, when it came to certain things about being a soldier. And, and I made a very significant investment when you look at a private's income when I first got to my permanent duty station. I went down to clothing sales. And I purchased a full set of LBE, load-bearing equipment. The only thing I didn't purchase was a Kevlar helmet because those are very expensive. I did purchase the cover for it, etc. Why would you do this when all of this gear is issued to you? Ah, inspections. Uh, whenever we had to lay out our gear for inspections, I would lay that gear out. And if I got a gig, I knew it was bullshit because it was just like, it would have mattered because there's nothing there, because it's never been used. It's been in plastic, it's come out of the plastic and been laid down, and it's gone back into plastic. And uh, usually I got very, very good marks on an inspection, at least for that stuff, because of that. And we would also have these guard duties we would pull. And on these guard duties, um, you would, uh, you'd stand inspection before guard. And they would usually choose, they called it numero uno, and different units probably call it different things. But that was like the person that looked the best who everything was squared away haircut standing at attention how they responded to commands uniform equipment everything strack and if you were that guy that got called out for that well then you basically got a pass for the duration of guard duty and what that meant is if it was a one day duty it wasn't that big a deal but if it was like a there was like our ammo supply point guard shifts We'd be on that duty for a week. So basically you get a week off work for free. So I had a whole set of uniforms, LVE, all my equipment, pack, everything that had never, never seen the light of day that I would suit up with and wear for that inspection. And when that inspection was over, if I didn't win, all that shit went back in my, my locker and the, the, the regular stuff, which I kept in good shape and well cleaned and all and serviceable, went back on. And... uh I pulled my, my fair share of get-out-of-jail-free cards with that one. And the reason I bring that up is I bought that equipment all the way back in 1991 would have been when I bought that. And I can tell you it was, it was more expensive for a soldier to buy new than it is for a civilian to buy equipment that's almost new today. That's, that's how low price the Alice and LBE gear is. And that's, that's the biggest reason people choose it. It's cheap. And it's good, hardcore stuff. In the end, I think it mostly comes down to personal preference, and I think it should be tempered with this. 
we as civilians have a propensity when we start thinking about preparedness to start playing scenarios in our little brains that are never going to happen. And we think we're going to be out there with the rebels fighting the evil Illuminati or whatever it is. And your needs as a civilian are different than the needs of a soldier. Uh, a, a bug out bag for you should be more about moving from one place that's dangerous to a place of safety rather than living off the land for a, a week off MREs and, you know, trapped muskrats. Um, it, it just is not a realistic scenario. So a lot of times I think that we actually would probably be better off with more civilian oriented equipment. Um, I prefer black. But I will go with something that's more of a camping color than a hunt or a hunter's, something that's like a hunter would have than tactical, even over that. And the reason is, in our situation, we don't want to be identified as being anything unusual. You see, a soldier wears a uniform for a reason to identify him as a soldier. It's not just so his commanding officer can inspect it and yell at him. Uh, the rules of warfare are such that a soldier is treated a certain way differently than, let's say, a, a, a rebel impromptu group. Um, it's actually the justification for local militias in the United States to have uniforms. So if the country ever were invaded and you're actually fighting at the side of your, your military, uh, that if you were captured by the enemy, you cannot be made out to be some sort of, uh, of a war criminal, that you're acting within the rules of war as a civilian militia supporting regular troops. Doesn't mean you're in good shape, but if the other side's following anything close to the rules of war, you're better off than just being somebody dressed in uh, street clothes blowing something up. You're at least supposed to be treated differently. Um, but that doesn't really apply to what you're asking. I see the biggest reason to use surplus military equipment is it's heavy-duty, dependable, bulletproof gear that you can get cheap. So I'm going to come down on the side of the Alice gear and the LBE equipment because it's more available cheap today than the Molly gear. But I'm going to say that most people would be better off if you're actually ever worried about having to bug out on foot, having to deal with a situation where maybe martial law has been declared or something like that, having to deal with a situation where uh, your your fellow citizen may now be your greatest enemy. And these situations, again, I'm not the, you know, the FEMA camps are coming to get you tomorrow. They're going to put you on the blue line. Oh, you're going to die. I'm not that guy because that guy's a dumbass. Really, he is. Um But I, I can tell you that in individual situations, like Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Andrew, for two examples, uh, there's been times where it, people have targeted other people because they can get away with it because law enforcement's low-key. I would rather be armed to the teeth and look helpless than look armed to the teeth and be armed to the teeth in that scenario. I want to look like the vagrant just making my way through that people tend to leave alone. Because that way, even if I am approached by somebody that wishes to attack me, they're probably likely to underestimate me. And if I'm dressed in BDUs and I'm using, you know, uh, military digital camo stuff and I'm all kitted up and I, I, even if you don't see my weapon, you're expecting that I'm armed and you're probably going to come harder at me than if you think I'm just some idiot you can easily victimize. You, you, you always want to think if you're going to be in any kind of conflict, you want to follow you know, the art of war. And that is always pick the time chase, uh, the, the time, the situation, and the circumstances of the battle if you can. And never choose to engage in a fight you cannot win. 
In fact, it's not even that. That's not what it says. It says never choose to engage in a battle unless you know you can win. And in fact, you know that you will win. So if you're choosing your battles, you can always choose the points where you can win. And in these situations where you end up on foot and in dangerous areas, the best way you can control that is to not be perceived as a threat. Because someone that means to do you harm that perceives you as a threat will probably be better at the way they attack you. I'll put it that way. So be careful with all this military kitted up tactical stuff and yada, 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 because it doesn't really apply. Start thinking about what your individual situation is and tailor to it. But if you're going to use the equipment, I'm going to come down on the side of the stuff that's more affordable. Just because if you're going to go that to that world, I think that's the reason to. Otherwise, you're better off buying really well-made equipment designed for the civilian. Because that's what you are. You're, n you're not going to go fight the Illuminati with your M16. You're not. Or, I, I'm sorry, your AR-15. You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. It's not real. It's all bullshit. Don't buy into it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. I have a question for Brian Black. <clears throat> Looking for a recommendation for a safe, something, you know, in the few hundred dollar range, you know, up to, I guess, you know, five or six hundred that is movable by one person. And details are that, uh, I'm, I have a, I currently have a safe I really like. It's an eight gun safe, but it's smaller than I expected. I guess there's no room for pistols, there's no room for ammo. You know, and it basically, it, when it said eight guns, it meant eight guns. Um, so that, that's the, um, it's too small and I need more room. The other thing is that I'm going to be moving in the fall, hopefully, if everything works out well. So it's something I want to be able to move myself. Um, so if you have any suggestions, that'd be great. Right now I'm keeping my ammo in a big steel cabinet kind of that you'd see in like an office, a double door steel cabinet. And it works, and I put some guns in there too, but I prefer something just a little more secure than that to keep my kids out of it. Um, and I really like your ideas for reinvigorating the expert council. Thanks a lot for all you do. Bye. I've got the answer from you from Brian Black, member of our expert council, and uh, of course runs the website itstactical.com, which is the, probably the, the, the most impressive website there is today in the, the tactical world. Uh, he just, just does an awesome job, and he's one of the council members that's not just an associate of the show and a, uh, and a well thought of individual in my eyes. He's actually a very, very close personal friend, and I love whenever we get to hear Brian on my show, and uh, Brian, What say you with safes, man? I know that uh, this is one of your uh, well-researched areas. Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black with ITS Tactical, answering a question from an unnamed individual that was asking about some safe options. Um, the question revolved around wanting to spend about five to $600 on a safe that could accommodate more than eight guns as well as be movable by one person. Um, I am a big proponent of... First off, anchoring safes to begin with. So um, being movable is is definitely viable even if you actually bolt down or anchor into um, your foundation with a safe um, because if you can move it by yourself, obviously someone else is going to be able to do the same. So that's kind of a little tip there. Um, also, um, I'm a big fan of Liberty safes. Uh, that's one of the safes that I have, and I've really been fond of the quality and uh, the build and as well as the uh, the rating for 
um, fireproofness, I guess, if that's the word. <laughs> but uh, uh, there's also um, a Liberty Revolution safe that I was kind of looking into when I was uh, researching this question. And Gander Mountain has uh, a 18-gun safe that's around $500, uh, as well as kind of a 24-gun model that's around $700. So those are some options. Um, and I will say that the question was revolving around wanting to store ammunition as well in, in the gun safe. And you're definitely going to be giving up some of that gun storage space with ammunition. Um, so that's just a consideration. Um, usually with... Excuse me. Usually with uh, gun safes, you you're not going to have much shelf space. Even I guess in this price range is what I'm trying to say. So in the five to seven hundred dollar, five to six hundred dollar range, you're just uh, something to be aware of. And also, as far as moving it with one person, it, you should be able to do that um, as long as you know you've got a single story home and you're not moving up and down stairs and things like that. But um, just a basic fridge dolly with a with a strap, like a strap dolly is, you know, kind of what you use to do that. So hopefully that helps and answers some of your questions, and thanks a lot for the opportunity. And appreciate the Rebel Podcast and everything you do, Jack. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jack, this is Gordon from Georgia. I've got 83 acres in North Georgia that originally was bought for recreation and for potential for a bug out. But then I messed up and started listening to you, got involved in permaethos, and the plans have gotten much bigger. I want to turn that into a homestead and turn some bottom land into a sanctuary for wildlife uh, that I can hunt on that uh, will be a nice preserve. The upper part of it, which is not bottom land, I want to turn into a uh, food forest and my normal home. What what I am a little bit concerned about, I'm overwhelmed and would like to know where you would begin with all of that, uh, where you would start, what would make the most logical sense in the way to proceed. Thank you. Enjoy listening to you. Take care. Bye. Well, I'm going to make the decision a lot to do with economics. Uh, most people don't have open-ended budgets where they can just do whatever they want. So I'm going to look at economics. I'm going to look at how much time I have to do this, and I'm going to look at my needs, wants, and desires as I make a determination. But So one of the things you've got is you've got this great blessing in 83 acres of land, and it can become a great curse because that's a lot of land. I think most people um, that haven't ever walked just a five-acre field struggle with how big something like 80 acres really is, especially when it's wooded and it's got some hills and some terrain to it. It, it, it gets bigger. I mean, if you think about... Because you got to think about when you're walking hills, right, up and down. If you had an 80-acre piece of land with significant hills, valleys, and ridges on it, and you were to, like, have a scale model made of it, right, like a map, but it was the scale so that, like, it actually raised up. You put your hands over you could feel it move, and you cut that 80-acre square out, and you then you took it and you mashed it flat, it would get much bigger. It would get much bigger. you got to think about it this way. If you're looking at from one hill to another and there's a valley in between it, the distance from point A to point B, if you're shooting with a rifle, might be 100 yards. But if you walk it, you might pass off 150 yards or 200 yards. So that's a big piece of land, and it, it starts to get overwhelming really, really fast. And if you start spreading out your efforts too far and wide, you'll get overwhelmed, frustrated, and some of the things that you did to try to make things better might turn into weed mats and things like that and make things worse. 
So you got to start thinking. Now, here's where the economics come into this. Georgia is probably like Texas. You're probably allowed to feed deer and uh, squirrels and, and turkeys in, in Georgia. Well, um, a couple hundred bucks buys a deer feeder and a hell of a lot of feed corn. Am I over the hill, my heels in love with throwing corn to deer? No, but if I'm just really worried about right away trying to attract deer in the area, stuff like that, and putting in things like boxes for squirrels to nest in and maybe putting in a small food plot and all, did a lot of good for a lot, a lot of money. And they're very self-sufficient, and I don't have to mess with them much. So I might lean, I might lean toward that. I will probably start with food forest around the house, and this is your problem. You're going to try to make it way too big. You didn't say you want to grow to market. You didn't say you want to farm. You said you want to have your own home there, and you want food for yourself. A three-quarter acre food forest produces a shitload of food. And it may be hard for you to scale it down that small in your mind when you have 80 acres to work with. But it's probably all that you really need. It's a lot to get started with. It's a lot. That's that's hundreds of trees. That's that's a, over a hundred trees and probably two hundred bushes in climax. Let alone support species and herbs and ground covers and everything else. I would look at doing a half acre to one acre designed in the food forest as your initial step. Now. If you can do certain things like put that on higher ground so that if you want to later you can keep extending it, that's great. And thinking forward is always great. But I would probably start there. For your livestock, not your livestock, for your wildlife area, and this is something that you should do with a piece of land no matter how big or how small, but you probably really need to do this with something like that. One of the first things you need to do is an assessment of what's there. What's growing there now? There's a couple reasons. One, if there's if there's wildlife there, they're living off something. So sometimes you don't have to really add anything. You can just enhance what's there. Um, if you if you find they're they're really doing well feeding on one particular type of plant, and you can advantage that plant a little bit, that can help. Putting in a small dam, small water tank somewhere, huge wildlife multiplier. In your climate. Pecans, chestnuts, chingapin all do really, really well. If you have some open glades where those types of things can be planted, great. Using something like the irripan, since they're kind of remote, again, it's called irripan, I-R-R-I-P-A-N, to help with irrigation, and a piece of chicken wire around them so that the deer don't strip them down to the ground before they get up, be a really interesting way to do things there. I think really, though, it's hard for me to answer this question with the amount of information that I have because I don't think you've done enough of, of your own self-analysis yet to really make these determinations for yourself because I can't make them in the end. I can tell you I would lean toward feeding myself, and I would lean toward very simple improvements to the wildlife habitat. Very, very simple improvements to the wildlife habitat. And you have to look at what wildlife What wildlife do I do I want to attract? I'm in North Georgia. Probably have feral hogs. Some, not anywhere near what we have down here. Definitely got deer. Definitely got squirrel. Definitely got turkey. If there's if it's bottomland, you probably have some waterfowl uh, habitat back there. A lot of bottomland is really easy to put water in. 
if you have access to somebody with heavy equipment that can come in and put in some half-acre tanks, that is probably the biggest bang for the buck in wildlife enhancement that you can get. The bring in the diversity of species. And, I mean, when you think about feeding yourself, you can put a half-acre tank and stock that sucker with channel catfish for not much money. And, and that's, that's a hell of a return on your investment over the long haul. And if you can put in several tanks and do some with bluegills as a predominant species and some with other, other species, bluegill and bass work real well together because the bass help control the bluegill populations, which is necessary. But, you know, small tanks, tenth, two-tenths of an acre, um, stocked with hybrid bluegill, them damn things grow three pounds and they don't reproduce so that you don't end up with stunted growth. Um, there's a lot that can be done with water. And uh, so that's that's definitely something that I'd look at there. But you really need to sit down with your entire property on a print. And you need to think about what you want. And you need to do a zone analysis, sector analysis. You need to do an existing vegetation analysis. You need to look at your finances. You need to look at what's already doing really well. You need to look at you need to find areas that you're just going to say, I'm preserving this area. Nothing's ever happening here. With 80 acres, your zone five, which is your wilderness area, where all you do all you do is sustainably hunt and gather, should probably be, especially for this type of property, it's not a farm, 40 of your 80 acres. 40 of your 80 acres, you should do nothing, and if you're doing anything, you're putting water on it, and you're leaving it alone. Um, your your, your property is probably loaded with oaks already. Do not cut a mature oak tree unless it absolutely has to happen. And if you if you have that attitude, you'll find maybe you'll cut one. You know, I mean, seriously, the the value of that mast crop. I mean, that's that's your squirrels, that's your turkey, that's your deer, that's your hogs. Um, black walnut will do there, do well there for you. Um, though I'm not in love with black walnut, honestly. Um, I, I find squirrels will eat it, but they really prefer almost everything else first. Uh, deer have no interest in black walnuts from what I've seen. I've never seen a turkey get through a black walnut shell. But black walnut would be a good timber crop. Very high quality, very high dollar timber. And it is it does have a food yield. Apple will probably do well, especially if you do apple for this amount of property. If you have some glades. A glade, for those that don't really know what the term means... And people think of the Everglades because they go on forever. That's why they call them that. But a glade is an open area surrounded by woods. In the Everglades, you got a lot of those open areas surrounded by woods because you got water keeping stuff from growing. But when you have these clearings back in the woods, they're called a glade. And generally to be considered a glade, the area needs to be at least twice the width of the height of the tallest tree of the tall, or, the, or the average height of the trees around it. Reason being, if it's not at least twice as wide, so stick, stick your two hands up near like you're signaling touchdown, you know, and bring them down to your elbows or sitting on the table, and think of your two arms as being the, the trees that make up the glade. And if you put them far enough apart so that you could put them both down and touch fingers and go a little further so your fingers are apart and stand them back up, and you visualize that as a great big tree in a forest, you can see with an opening like that that as the sun came overhead, there'd be a lot of sun hitting the ground there. And if you bring them together where they're like half the distance of their height, you can see that not much light's going to get through. So you want the glade, if it's a true glade, to be at least as, 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 as big 
is the 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 is twice the height of the average tree. So if the average tree is 100 feet, your glade should be at least 200 feet in 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 size. A little permaculture aside there. If you have glades like that out there or open areas, even if they're not quite that good, you know, planting fruit trees from seed, uh, giving them some kind of little extra support like the irapan, and and around them putting some sort of small you know protection. Uh, like like chicken wire uh, would would multiply really really fast and once those trees you know if you use a four foot piece of chicken wire uh, in fact you probably want to go with something that's more like a five foot piece of uh, of fencing so the, the the top of that tree has to get up over five feet before the animals can really get to it and and by the time it gets up there and it starts crowning out at like six seven feet high. It's above the browse line. It's well established, and you can use that material, that that irrigation pan, and then that that fencing to establish other plants. Uh, you can plant a shitload of apple trees for like the garbage that that, that people throw away in an apple core. Uh, stratify those apple seeds. The way you do that's pretty simple. You put your apple seeds in a wet piece of paper towel, put that in a plastic bag, write the date on them, leave them in a refrigerator for at least 45 days. When you take them out, they'll probably have little sprouts coming out of them, plant them, plant them into the dirt, and they'll grow. That's what it takes. I wouldn't plant them this time of year. You want to plant them in the spring. Um, and, you know, you can say that that apple may not produce true to type. If it was a golden delicious, it may not be a golden delicious, but it's going to produce apples, and a lot of them. And they'll probably be good for eating, but they're definitely good for wildlife. And there's a lot of other trees that you can reproduce some seed like that. Chestnut from seed is easy. Chestnut from seed is is dead simple easy. They pretty much they're, they're as easy as an oak uh, is with an acorn. And you know if you plant a shitload of Chinese chestnut and you start yanking out all the ones that don't flower by the third year, you'll have trees producing chestnuts in in five years. So you can put you know, chinga pins. You can do the same thing with, which is just like small chestnuts. And they'll they'll go better in your deep bottom land where the soil stays really really wet. Chinga pins in there, blackberry. Uh, you can go buy now. See, here's how you can start multiplying, right? Put your food forest in, and use cuttings to propagate your wildlife habitat. So go out and get four or five varieties of blackberry. Uh, you know, Washita, Prime Jim, Prime Jan, Natchez, whatever. Put those in your food forest, and then root canes, and take those canes down and plant them at the right time of year into your 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 wildlife habitat. And all of a sudden, you start establishing high-productive plants that you can use and gather from, but the animals can use as well. That's another way to look at this. Start evaluating how many resources you have on this land that you don't really need to do anything for. Uh, you get a local plant. Find somebody that's a local uh, plant expert, forager, herbologist, that type of thing, to come tour your land with you and find things for you. Ask them when's the best time of year for you to come. Hire them two or three different times a year. Because there's certain things that are always available in fall, always available in spring, what have you. You might find a, a massive amount of fun, fungi available on your property you don't have to do anything for. The best mushrooms are not cultivated. They grow. They just show up. Uh, you have a great resource there. The key is to pull back and focus on a, a one or two very small areas at a time. Get them up to the way that you want to get them. If you haven't taken a permaculture design course, this is probably it's probably worth it to invest in a PDC, and it sounds like you have if you're involved with Permaethos. And by the way, for those of you waiting for the Permaethos PDC, it looks like next Friday we'll probably release Chapter 1, and we'll, we'll start rolling from there. If it's not next Friday, it'll be the Friday after that. 
We're about ready to roll with that. We're trying to fix up some technical glitches and things like that. Uh, a PDC really helps you design the property. And what you can do with it when you have a PDC is you can take an 80-acre property and you do what's called a blue sky design to it. If money were no object, what would I do? And then you back down from there based on the resources you have. Though I'll tell you that probably here's a good way to get unstuck. Either find somebody else's large property and go in there and say what you would do. Or if you can do this, make a print of your property, take a walk, convince yourself that you don't own it. Convince yourself that it's a friend's property. And a lot of your decisions will just tumble out. We get so married to it's different, it's it's unique, it's special, whatever. I can't do this, I can't do that, blah, 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 when it's ours. When we just look at it as an independent third party, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this goes here, there's a contour line there, there should be a swale there, blah, 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 boom, uh, that type of thing. So I think you need to know more and you need to do a more heavy analysis of the property itself and of your own wants and desires. But those are just some thoughts I have. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. George from Champaign, Illinois. Question. When do you recommend attending a permaculture design course? Before, after, or during agricultural coursework in a traditional college setting. Details. I'll be attending college for almost no out-of-pocket expense by using military education benefits. I'm considering a career in permaculture, either as a producer or doing system design and installation. My dad grew up on a farm, so I have some basic agricultural knowledge, uh, but nothing that is really in depth. Uh, the coursework I would be doing would be 100 and 200 level classes, things like animal management, uh, soil science, stuff like that. I'm kind of wondering whether it would be easier to get more out of the college coursework by having a in-depth understanding of permaculture or whether it would be easier to apply the agricultural knowledge once I have completed it and then take my permaculture design course. I know everybody says it, but we all mean it. Thanks for everything you do. Keep up the great work. Well, with the, with the college coursework, you're already leaning where I would advise you to go, at least leaning that way. Uh, when I first heard this, I thought you were talking about just getting a degree in agriculture. And I think that's a terrible idea. I think PDC, when you take the PDC, has nothing to do with that being a terrible idea. It just is. Um, you know, as I was listening to that, what I was going to say is that if you're going to get a degree, I would look more into going to like soil biology or forest ecology. Um, or organic chemistry, or engineering, uh, with a permaculture design certification, and then further study, because the PDC is just the first step, and then further study. But with that plus an engineering knowledge, the things that could be done with large-scale earthworks are kind of mind-numbing. Uh, projects that that I personally would never take on without a professional engineer that you could are, are, are pretty impressive. So you, you still should do what you want to do. And, and livestock management, I don't really know what you're going to get. When it comes to agriculture courses that are designed for people that want to run and manage farms, you're going to get spray, 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 chemical, 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 monocrop, 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 plow, harrow, crop rotation. The same crap over and over again. 
So I, I would look like, again, more toward, if you're going toward a degree field here, soil biology, organic chemistry, forest ecology, that type of thing. I think not, and I almost think the study of the forest would be better than uh, forestry. Forestry is managing the forest. Forest ecology is studying what, what does a natural forest look like. That's the greatest teacher is in permaculture. Um, I would avail yourself, though, of some other things while you're taking these courses. Um, I, I think business ma some courses in business management, uh, financial management, and basic marketing. Uh, those are more valuable to a farmer today than an agricultural course. As for when to take your PDC, I'm a little bit up in the air about it. My gut is now, yesterday, uh, three days ago, do it immediately so that you are inoculated as you go into this academic space where they're going to talk conventional this and have to that and somewhat brainwash you in the other direction so that you would have this kind of this inoculum that knows, well, there's other ways to do things. The, the problem with that, though, is you may find yourself arguing with professors about how stupid and wrong they are and didn't Monsanto write this textbook. Um, and if you're, if you're gonna go into those courses, it might be better to just go through them and somewhere along the way take the course. But in the end, I think you're better off taking the course. Because what that'll help you do is when you've selected a block, a course in college that's wrong for you, know that it's wrong. I, I need to do something else with this money and time than take this course. This is so off the reservation from what I want to do. Um, I think that probably the greatest opportunity in permaculture as a producer exists right now in uh, civopasture systems. And that are, those are systems where we're managing pasture surrounded by forested uh, tree lines and things like that. It's what Mark Shepard does with restoration agriculture. I think if I was either consulting with farmers putting in systems or putting in my own, that that would be what I would want to do, is civil pasture systems. They take quite a bit of money to get off the ground. They take quite a few years to really start paying for themselves. But they're the only high-output, productive system that there is that rapidly moves you into a zero-input system. The, the reality is that farming today is a fool's errand. Food has been suppressed in price to such a low price that what people think of as expensive food is fairly priced food. The, the, the food that you're eating today has been so subsidized through the theft in the form of tax dollars that it appears a lot less expensive than it is. That, that, that $2 box of crap is actually a $5 box of crap when you, when you add up the total cost of society in it just up front. The long-term medical costs make it a $15 box of crap, by the way. And the reason that agriculture is such a losing game financially without government subsidies, and this is why a lot of farmers say you can't do it without a subsidy, is the cost of inputs. That's, that's the killer. It's the input cost. When you go into a perennial civil-pasture-managed system, you end up using eventually no insectus. Even if you go from like a conventional conversion to organic, conversion to beyond organic permaculture over time, sooner or later you get there. You get to no pesticides, no insecticides, no chemicals, no fertilizers, no plowing. You know, if you're doing any plowing with a civil pasture system, you're using something like a subsoiler and you're going through and ripping the soil on a key line, you know, once a year. 
And it doesn't even really plow. That the thing's that's like a torpedo below the soil. It just kind of opens it up. And then you just let it go back. You're not buying seed. Um, you're bringing in new livestock, maybe, and you might be buying stock. You may not be breeding all your own stock, but your last cycle's stock, some of the profit from that was set aside so that you can bring in new stock. You're as close to a zero-input system in a civo-pasture-managed system, tree-based system, that you'll ever get. So I think... For me, that would lead me to forest ecology and or engineering. Though I would tell you I think it's easier to buy the services of an engineer than to, than to find the services of a good forest ecologist that will understand permaculture. So I'd move to that soil biology, forest ecology world. You might be better off going through some of the intense clinics that Elaine Ingram does or something, though, to, to learn about soil. The lady's already figured it all out. So you might want to be open to things like that. I don't think you'll be able to use your government money for it, but you, you might want to be open to things like that. Um, but I guess the point I was going on, since I would want, if I was going to just be like, I'm going to quit TSP and go be a permaculture consultant and help people establish farms. And I'm going to charge for my services, and I'm going to charge two, two ways. I, this, is how, this is how I would do this today, by the way. I would say, okay, my fee is $15,000 to consult with you on this. For a couple of weeks, we're going to figure it out. You're going to pay me, and I'm going to go away. You do it or you don't. You're on your own. Uh, or I'm going to charge you $6,000 to do this, and I'm going to stay with you as a consultant for free, and I'm going to own 10% of the production of this farm for the rest of the, the, this farm's existence. If you sell it, it will be it will require that, that my 10% interest remains, and when the new owner has it, I have that 10% interest in it. I think I can become filthy rich doing that, by the way, um, in a very good way. And since I would go toward that, I would, if I was going to now, if I was you know younger and I was going to go through an educational path again, I was going to add a PDC to that, and I was going to take some conventional education, I would go you know toward the forestry uh, education because I know it would do the most for me in that world. So I think what you need to do is start trying to think of, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, but what do you want to be when you grow up? When, when you've completed this, where do you want to go? And I think you need to back engineer the education into the, 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 the result. So if you end up saying, well, what I actually want to do is develop uh, ecological housing um, neighborhoods. I want to change what it means to be a subdivision. I want to build things like, uh, what's the name of that place out in uh, Davis, California? Village Homes. I want to make that mainstream, and I want to go in and buy pieces of land that people don't see the potential for, and I want to develop housing sites around them. I want to develop a large um, common area that uses uh, earthworks and dams and ponds and then sell off lots with certain you know incentives to get people to build ecological housing. And I want to have uh, the, the whole selling point of this is when you live here, there's food throughout the entire system. I'm probably going to lean more toward engineering courses then. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying, like, if that's where I want to get to, well, the permaculture knowledge can be acquired through alternative education, but the engineering knowledge to put in large-scale earthworks and not, like, kill people or flood people or make things into a mud hole, that comes out from the uh, mainstream education really well. They're good at that. They know how to do that. Now, they might teach you how to make all the water go away, but if you have the engineering principles understood, you know how to make the water stay and not do damage. So I think that's really what you have to look at. As to when to take your PDC, 
since you're not sure about everything else, I would take your PDC as soon as possible. Um, and with someone with so much on the line here, you, you're going to invest. See, understand that it's not free for you to go to college. It's not almost free for you to go to college because you're going to spend your time and energy there, and that's worth money too. You're just not paying cash out of pocket to do that. With that on the line, I would try to find and make the time and go to a face-to-face, sit-down, two-week-long PDC where you go somewhere, like to Ben Falks or something like that. And I would sit that PDC. Not, I wouldn't take a remote one for this type of a decision. And I would talk. To, I would make sure you'll probably be in a class size of about 20. Pick two people every day during your free time, and each one at a time, and have a deep conversation about uh, permaculture with them. Why are you here? What are you thinking about doing? To have the conversation completely about them. By the way, everybody there will think you're the coolest, most fascinating person in the world. I'll tell you why in a second. But talk to them about themselves for an hour a day, two, two students each day, and try to talk to everybody there that way the whole time you're there. And you will have a million ideas then of what to do. And you'll also see what direction the market's moving. That's market analysis technique. So that's what I would do, and I would take the PDC as soon as you can. Now, here's why. This is an aside, but it's an interesting aside that helps people understand psychology. There was a research scientist one time. I, I don't remember where I read this, but this was an actually recorded thing. This is not a myth. This really happened. Um, that got a, an idea... And he decided he was going to see what happened if you had a very long conversation with someone and gave them no information about yourself at all and only talked about them. So he bought plane tickets, like like, like 12 of them, uh, that flew from New York to L.A. and then L.A. back to New York and then New York to L.A. and then L.A. back to New York and New York to L.A. and L.A. back to New York. And he just kept doing that until he ended up back where he started you know, several days or weeks later. And he bought a first-class ticket which would guarantee him that there would only be two people side by side, and he would have this, this significant length of time to speak to that one person the entire flight, and there really was nowhere for them to go. They were kind of a captive audience. And of course, he didn't tell them what he was doing. And he had this conversation with them, and then he had it set up to where when they exited the plane, somebody would pull them off to the side with a camera and everything, so they had that authoritative look of being news media or whatever, and say, we're doing a story on uh, flying on, on aircraft today, and the people you meet when you're there, can we talk to you for a minute? Most people are, yeah, yeah sure. So they, 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 they've got this person as a mark, and he has no idea he's a mark, you know, and they, and they, they bring him over and they start talking to him, and they say, well, what was this flight like? And all of them said, this was a great flight. And they said, well, why? Well, you were asking about the people we fly with. The guy that I fly, flew with was fascinating. He was nice. He was fun to talk to. He was a great guy. And he was just very interesting. And they said, really? What's his name? They didn't know. What's he do for a living? They didn't know. <laughs> Where does he live? They didn't know. This guy was so slick in not actually giving any information. Like when they'd say, "Well, like, are you are you are you going are you going home or are you going for business?" Uh, I, I just like to go to Los Angeles sometimes, so I'm heading out there. But you were saying that your kids are doing what? Like that? And they thought he was fascinating because the entire conversation was about them. There's a lesson there in psychology, sales, marketing, you name it. One more and we're done for the day.
G'day Jack. Drew from the uh, Northern Rivers of New South Wales in Australia here. I'm only about 45 minutes from Jeff Lawton's uh, Permaculture Research Institute and I'm planning on getting up there on one of their open days to have a look around and I'm saving up for a face-to-face PDC up there as well. Been downloading your show for a bit over a year and when listening to your call of phone-ins while driving at work, I hear the occasional Aussie and Brit and more often Canadian voices. I was wondering, have you ever looked at your data by nation to look at how far your reach spreads and what nations other than the US and Canada seem to have picked up on your show and taken inspiration from your ideas? I reckon that your permaethos idea might find fertile ground here in Australia. I'm definitely one of those odd folks who's come into a more libertarian mindset from the left side of politics, and when I listen to you, I find myself nodding in agreement much more often than screaming abuse at the speaker. Anyway, thanks for what you do, and uh, keep up the good work. Cheers, mate. Well, it's 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 not as big as you might think in percentages, but it's bigger than I ever thought it would be when I would when I started. Um, about eighty percent of survival podcast visitors are from the United States or Canada. About eighty uh, percent of the two. About seventy seven seventy five percent of those uh, are are U.S. based. Uh, so you're looking at maybe I'm, I'm kind of giving that a, as a as a wrong way. Then uh, you're you're looking more like like seventy two percent U.S. Uh, and then maybe eighteen percent Canadian listeners. The rest of the twenty percent are from various places around the world, and twenty percent may not sound like a big number, but remember the show today is reaching over a hundred thousand people a day. So when you say that 20% of the audience is outside of the U.S. and Canadian market, that's 20,000 people around the world. There is no big concentration uh, of listeners anywhere. The biggest is going to be Australia, and that's a, almost 5% of listeners are from Australia. Now, these are based on analytics data, which are not 100%, because I also have a, a report, uh, at least one report, that tells me about 3% of my listeners are in India. Which, which I don't really believe to be true. I, I think there's something weird going on with uh, international listeners and hopping and VPSs or something there. Um, but verified places that I know we have significant numbers of listeners just by hearing from them and other things that come up on my analytical data uh, include Australia, New Zealand, England, Ireland, Denmark, France, Italy, Japan, China. These are all places I know we have significant listener base. We also have a fairly large number of people I've heard from uh, through Central and South America and Costa Rica. Uh, definitely Chile and Brazil uh, are, are significantly represented in numbers of listeners. In general, our strongest listener bases internationally are places where English is either spoken as a primary language or most people know English. So Japan, for instance, uh, I think most of the people that listen there are U.S. expatriates or are U.S. serving abroad in some type of employment, but a lot of Japanese people do speak English. So it's also a place where we can get some native listeners. We are listened to by contractors and soldiers who also share us with uh, civilian populations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I had one letter that came to me from a construction contractor in Iraq uh, quite a few years ago that said that he and his entire work crew of over 20 Iraqis sat down and listened to TSP at lunch every single day. 
Um, I read that on the uh, air, and when I read that, it was a hard time, hard thing not to crack my voice with how moving that was, because none of the Iraqis spoke English except one guy, and he sat there and translated my show into their language while while they had lunch together. And that gentleman said, "You're you're helping heal a broken land. These people need what you're talking about from a self sufficiency standpoint. You don't have to tell them the shit can hit the fan. They've seen it." Um, So we are throughout Afghanistan and Iraq that way. Uh, I do know we have some listeners in Africa. Uh, not a significantly high number, but, but enough that they show up on the analytics data. Our highest listenership in Africa is actually in South Africa. Uh, but we actually have some listeners in Liberia. Uh, Which is like really? I, I, I don't understand. Uh, we we do have some listeners throughout other parts of the Middle East. There, there's probably not a country in Europe that hasn't shown up with at least a few listeners here and there. Uh, we are truly global now. We are we are reaching people all over the world, and we are reaching people who are choosing to listen. I, I think that's the most important thing about the TSP community and family. There is absolutely no captive audience for TSP. We're not on any radio stations where, oh, it's the best thing on the radio. Damn it, I don't like this guy, but he's better than everybody else. We're, we, we exist in a 100% on-demand environment. Uh, we exist in a way that if I'm talking about something you're not interested in today, you can just listen to one of the other 1,300-odd episodes about something you do want. Uh, we run as a podcast, so if, if you hear a caller ask a question and you, you're like, I don't really care, you can skip ahead. Um, I think that's what makes podcasting unique and have, have this universal global reach with something that people choose to listen to. I am constantly humbled and honored with how many people do listen, especially when I understand I'm not plugging into somebody else's uh, capital or credibility. Uh, I've had several opportunities uh, in, in, in both being paid to or being offered very inexpensive airtime to be on radio stations throughout the United States, including some syndicated opportunities. I've considered them, uh, and the syndicated opportunities were, were ones where I was going to have to pay for the time, but, but it was being done in a way that would have made it very, very affordable to reach a lot of people. And uh, I, I've actually been offered at least to be looked at for several other radio opportunities that would be more of your, a paid DJ type of thing. And I've, I've turned them down. The only reason I've considered them, I, I had at least, I, I never considered taking a job. I, I'm not interested in that. Uh, but I did consider buying airtime. And the simple reason was, well, if I can hit 800,000 people in a day and 80,000 of those 800,000 end up sticking, even if I only do that for a year, that, that really grows the tent of TSP a lot. Um, but as I thought about it, what I came to the conclusion was, is even if I paid for the airtime, I really can't do things my way once I go into conventional radio anymore. I can have the full hour. I don't have to have sponsors, and I don't need them in, in that environment. So that would have been fine. But I, I can't. I can't speak my mind the way that I do here. And I think that's what makes us special. I think that's what makes us so broad and universal in reach. And I think, in spite of the fact that some people complain and bitch and whine, that occasionally I'll use a word like shit or asshole, um, that, that in the end, more people appreciate the genuine nature of what I'm saying. And I think when occasionally I have a jack rant and I snap out, I think occasionally, 
once in a while I go a little too far. I get a little bit too keyed up and a little bit too rambunctious, and I yell a little bit too much, and I think I could have handled that particular situation a little better. But I think in most instances when I get keyed up and angry and yell, I think you know what a lot of people are saying is, I feel that way too. I wish I could express myself like that. And I think they feel like they get a vent through me. I, I think that when a person like me is heard saying some of the things I did today about we need to leave other nations to run their own affairs uh, by these other nations, they realize that not every American wants to control their mind and their nation. And uh, I do think there's some people in the world that are really evil, bad people. And I can tell you this, I say this now to anybody living in a nation where they are, um, it's up to you to fix your problem. It's up to you to fix your problem. I can't fix your problem for you, and I'm not going to pretend that I can, and my country can't fix your problem for you. Uh, anybody that thinks that America is so great that we can fix other people's problems just need to come to America and look at the problems we have here. Um, we, we can't be fixing the problems of the rest of the world with the, with the vast, huge problems we have here. We can't even secure our own border on Mexico. And if one more person, by the way, uses the term children to talk about these people that are coming across the border, I think I'm going to find them and smack them in the face with a frozen fish. Something along the size of a, a steelhead trout might be the right thing. These are not children the way that they're using the word. And both sides of the aisle are dumb enough, even when they're arguing about what to do, that they're biting on that, that message. These children are coming here. Oh, they're children and they show the picture of a little girl sucking her thumb in a blanket and oh my god uh, and some chick holding her baby while the nurses or whatever well that kid didn't come here alone because there's mom holding it the average one of these kids that are coming here today folks are in their mid-teens and they're male you, you don't walk all that distance on your own when you're five and they're not just coming from mexico that's part of the problem with this law that we have right they're coming from guatemala and el salvador and nicaragua yeah You don't get from Nicaragua to the U.S. border on your own if you're five. And it's costing five to $10,000 to the cartels to get your kid to the United States. Guess what, folks? Those people that are sending their kids here don't have five to $10,000. You know what's happening? This is what the TV won't tell you. I don't know how I got here from there, but I might as well finish up with this because it's been on my mind. Think about this. You're a poor person living in the slums of Guatemala and you want better for your son. Cartel says, we'll take him to America. We only need $7,000. You haven't seen $7,000 in your life ever. You have no hope of ever having $7,000. And a nice man from the cartel says, they're going to take care of him when he gets to the United States and once he gets settled in, he'll be able to work and earn money and he can pay for it. And if we don't get him there, it'll never cost you anything. So the boy goes to the United States under the shepherding and with a debt to the cartels. How do you think he's going to earn his money back when he gets here? No matter what his intentions were, this is an outsourced form of freaking uh, slave labor. The cartels are importing their new enforcers, their new gang members, their new runners, their new lookouts in this right now. And they're calling them children. And by the legal definition of the word, they're children, they're adolescents, but they're not seven-year-olds and five-year-olds sucking their thumb and carrying a blanket. Stop believing what the TV tells you. And see, this is why I think we have a broad international reach, because people are being told the same bullshit in all these other countries. We, the, the, the world has a pretty low opinion of, of, of U.S. citizens at this point, because they think that we're all stupid, because their TV tells them that they're all better informed than us, and we're all stupid. 
But when they start hearing somebody actually speak the truth, they go, wait a minute, they're lying to us too. Oh, we, we appear informed. But you're, the value of the information you receive is only as valuable as the information itself and then what you do with it. I think, I think TSP is appealing to people throughout the world because we say the truth. Or at least I say the truth as I see it. And I actually always explain it that way too. I never say you have to agree with me. Sometimes I say I think if you, if you disagree with this thing, then you're stupid. But that's still my opinion. I could be wrong. I might be the one being stupid about that one thing. I don't know. Maybe I don't have all the information I think I do. I think that kind of honesty and humility, uh, even when you're a very confident person, still having that, that, that need to couch and say, hey, this still is just my opinion. Yours is valid, too. Even if I think you're dumb for it, I could be wrong. I think that's part of why we're so universally appealing. But we reach people all over the world, yeah. And... There really isn't a time in history other than now where this could happen. Um, 20 years ago, this wasn't possible. I, 15 years ago, it really wasn't possible, not, not to the level that it is today. Uh, the Internet has changed the world, and the ability to speak into a microphone and reach anyone anywhere with an Internet connection that wants to hear you is one of the most powerful things that's ever been unleashed on society. And... I'll tell you what, I don't think the people in power are very happy about it. I think that when they built the Internet, they did so with the intention to control humanity, and they unleashed something that is largely responsible for freeing the minds of humanity, and now they don't know what to do with it. And those of you that think they're just going to have like this stuff where they're hyping it up and telling you they're going to do a kill switch and Obama's going to shut the Internet down, you can't do that. The genie's out of the bottle, folks. There's, there's no way now. Too much is known. Um, we're going to change the world whether the world wants to be changed or not I think is how I feel about people that are learning to love liberty and we don't have to change the world the way that everybody else tries to do uh, we don't have to change other nations the way our nation tries to do and that's through the use of force every attempt to modify society by the people in power has used force either force of will, uh, force of violence force of propaganda But there's always been force behind it, the threat of force. Whether the force was applied or not, the threat was implied. The social engineering of this country is done through a taxation system that is completely unfair to the people that work the hardest. And, and, and that is implemented through what? The threat of violence at the point of a gun. And in many of these other nations that, that we reach this way, these people are starting to do some math and go, gee, as bad as they have it over there, we have it worse over here. At least when it comes to our national income tax. Like, man, that, that sucks. Yeah, but... And they don't know about all our other taxes and how much tax an American citizen really pays. But they're starting to figure that out, too. Wait a minute. this case, All this stuff they're telling us is wonderful. They're, they're paying for it at our expense without our choice. People are starting to figure that out. And it's only a matter of time before all the people that have been zombies and asleep at the switch but are the ones with actual morals and ethics that work for a living, that do everything they can to better themselves, start to realize that they're turning a gerbil wheel that's putting power directly into the pockets of the people that control them, and they're doing it in exchange for some pellets. And it's only a matter of time before those people don't take to sucking on the government tit when they step out of the gerbil wheel, but simply say, you know what, now that I'm aware... Now that I'm aware that my energy is feeding you, 
I'm going to redirect my energy. Because they're happy for you to go live on the government tit. They don't care. They're, they're totally okay with that. That's something I think many people do not understand, that, that the people that are in power are totally okay with half the population being on the receiving end of welfare. They like that. They think it's the most wonderful thing in the world because it's how they control both sides. What they don't want is free and independent people thinking for themselves, working directly in opposition to their system of control. Well, sorry about your luck. Sorry about your luck. If you're one of the, the power elites, I'm sorry about your luck because it's changed. You, you don't get to make these decisions anymore for us. We're going to make these decisions for ourselves. And, and the, the greatest weapon that the people of this world have in response to those in power is apathy. And I don't mean apathy that's misplaced. There's apathy that's like, oh, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Back to work. Ugh. Not that apathy. Apathy that works this way. Apathy for them and dead-centered focus on your own individual liberty and freedom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out of the system as much as I can. I'm going to pay those bastards as little as I can. I'm going to build the best quality of life I can for myself in the area with the greatest freedom that I can get to. And when they tell me something's really important, I'm going to go, go away, little boy. I don't care anymore. But there's a, there's a catastrophe happening. No, there's not. You caused it. You fix it. Go away. But if we don't, no, no, I just don't care. And then when my friend comes up to me and goes, did you see that thing on Fox News? No, don't care. But there's it. I, 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 no, seriously, like I have to go plant a tree. And my, my chickens need to be fed, and I have to help my son with the, the homework that I gave him because I'm, I'm seeing to his own education. And uh, I have a business that I'm running now, and uh, I have some stuff I'm doing to help my community members, so I, I, I don't care about that. But, but what if everybody was like you? Then that system would fall apart. Then that system would fall apart. That's what would happen. Then the people in power would have it wrenched from their hands in a day. Well, that's what would happen. Because America, you are controlled because you believe that they are necessary and that they matter. They don't. You're necessary and you matter. You're necessary for your family, your community, and the people that care about you. The people you elect and send to Washington, they're not necessary. We don't need them. It's time you show them that. And you show them that by stop listening to their bullshit. By stop participating in their bullshit. I think that's why people around the world are listening because... I think that message is universal, and I think that even though we're probably 1% of the world population now, I don't mean TSP, we're nowhere near that, but 1% of the world population now thinks this way. That 1% is the most powerful force for liberty that's ever existed in the world. And it's a peaceful force. A true, massive, peaceful force for liberty, probably for the first time, that's ever existed in a coalesced, organized way. And it's enough. It's enough to develop a critical mass. The world will change for the better. There'll probably be a lot of catastrophe between then and now, and that's why we pre prepare. But you want to leave the world a better place for your children? Stop participating in the part of the world that you don't want for them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. 
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.